I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. 11th of January. The doorbell goes around noon. I'm expecting Anthony Crawler, the photographer, so don't look through the window and open the door to find what I take to be a builder with a loose piece of flex in his hand and what could be a metre. He says he's working at a house nearby, but needs to check our drain, which may have a hairline crack. He makes to come in, but I say that if there is any work needs doing, we have a builder of our own, and in any case, my partner deals with all that. He then claims to have spoken to my boyfriend, who says it's okay. I shut the door on him and telephone Rupert, the so-called builder, meanwhile, banging on the door. Rupert, of course, has never spoken to anyone, so I go back to the door where, as soon as I open it, the caller gets his foot in the door, literally. Bridget, who's downstairs, now comes up, and at the sight of a third party he takes fright, retreating to a white van waiting opposite with its engine running, which drives off so quickly I fail to get the number. Thinking about it afterwards... Where he went wrong was in not being ingratiating enough or trying to explain what the drain problem was and graduating straight to the frenzied banging on the door. Your boyfriend didn't help either. Like all crooks, he was affronted when his honesty was questioned, if only because it implied a criticism of his performance. 29th of March, Richard Griffiths dies. We've been away for a couple of days, so I spared the unctuous telephone calls that always come from the tabloids on such occasions. We are sorry to be the bearer of bad tidings, or we hope we're not intruding on your grief. Outside his family, the person who would have known him best as an actor at the National, and who would have been most acquainted with the logistic difficulties caused by his bulk, was his dresser. No one will think to ask him and I've never known him gossip about the actors he's dressed, myself included. But he would have had an angle on Richard and how he coped with his life that is unshared by any of the obituary writers. Richard had an unending repertoire of anecdotes and an enviable spontaneous wit besides. I was working with him at the time when Henry VIII's flagship, the Mary Rose, was being laboriously raised from the depths of Portsmouth Harbour, This was being done by means of a cradle, when suddenly a cable snapped and the wreck slipped back into the water. Ah, said Richard, a slight hiccup on the atypical journey from grave to cradle. 7th of April. The morning spent paying bills, British gas and electricity, Thames water, Yorkshire water, Camden Council, Craven District Council and Mr Redhead, the coal merchant in Ingleton. Many of the bills are overdue 
about which I'm unrepentant. The only one I pay promptly and with no feeling of resentment is Mr. Redhead's. It wasn't always so. Before the public utilities were privatised, one paid bills more readily, not just because they were considerably cheaper, which of course they were, but because one had little sense of being exploited. Now, as I pay my water bills, for instance, I think of their overpaid executives and the shareholders to whom the profits go, and I know, despite the assurance of all such companies, that they are charging what they know they can get away with. Competition has not meant better service, nor has it brought down prices, with some corporate behaviour close to sharp practice. British Gas, for instance, regularly admits to send me a first bill, but only a reminder, which has no details about consumption. When challenged, they say this may be because bills have been sent online. But how can this be as we have no computer? If one telephones and manages eventually to get through... One is dealt with by someone always charming and even-tempered, and very often Scots, who promises to look into it. But when, in due course, the bill comes again, it is still with no details and coupled with threats of court action. So, whereas once upon a time I paid my bills as Auden said a gentleman should as soon as they were submitted, these days I put them off, paying sometimes only the third or fourth time of asking, or when I am assured, rhetorically I know, that the bailiffs are about to call. I am no crusader, but I wish there was a consumer's organisation which could coordinate individual resistance to these companies, setting up non- or late payment on such a scale that it would put a dent in the dividends of shareholders and the salaries of the executives concerned. This was written a few hours before I learned of Lady Thatcher's death and it's an appropriate epitaph. 3rd of May. I'm reading Neil McGregor's Shakespeare's Restless World. It's very good, even overcoming my A.L. Rouse-generated prejudice against reading about Shakespeare. I hadn't realised at Richard Griffith's funeral in Stratford that both Shakespeare and his father had been buried either in the church or the churchyard, the whereabouts of the graves now unknown. So when, waiting for the service to start, I go out for a pee under one of the yews in a sheltered corner of the cemetery, I may well have been pissing on Shakespeare's grave. More decorously, Richard's massive coffin was resting where presumably Shakespeare's coffin rested, a notion that would have pleased him, though at the service it goes unremarked. 16th of July, a book review in the LRB by Jonathan Coe of The Wit and Wisdom of Boris Johnson, edited by Harry Mount, and it kicks off with some remarks about the so-called satire boom of the early 1960s. It recalls John Bird's The Last Laugh, the Cambridge Footlights Review of 1959, which I saw and while recognising that it was too radical to be very funny, claims that it was undoubtedly a strong influence on Peter Cook, one of the original cast members, implying, I think, that in Beyond the Fringe, staged the following year, Peter was pushed in the general direction of satirical comedy. I don't think this was quite the case. Rather that John Bird's show confirmed Peter's reluctance to have anything to do with any subject, be it satire or not, 
which was not funny. Coincidences Peter's lines in Civil War, the sketch that opened the second half of Beyond the Fringe. When Dudley Moore voices disbelief that a four-minute warning would be enough in the case of a nuclear attack, Cook drawlingly retorts, I'd remind those doubters that some people in this great country of ours can run a mile in four minutes. I feel both small-minded and obsessive in being able to recall this after more than 50 years, but the four-minute joke was not Peter's, but mine. His more characteristic contribution to the sketch and its uproarious ending was when, in accordance with official instructions on what to do in the event of a nuclear explosion, Peter got into a large brown paper bag. Coe also says that in Beyond the Fringe, the tensions and contradictions inherent in the movement were already visible. This is certainly true, one of them being that one had to be quite defensive of one's own material, lest it be usurped by colleagues. Peter, who was by far the most prolific of the four of us, was already in 1960 established as a successful sketch writer for the reviews in the West End. This meant that at that time he had no wish to offend an audience and shied away from sketches that did. It was only later in his career that, as his humour became more anarchic and audiences in their turn more fawning and in on the joke, he ceased to care. Showbiz dies hard, and in these toothless stand-up days, I think Peter might just have liked Jeremy Hardy, but would have drawn the line at Stuart Lee. 18th of August. Watching the run-through of the touring version of People at the National, I reflect that there isn't much swearing in my plays. I imagine the characters in a play by Mark Ravenhill, say, get through more fucks in the first five minutes than there are in my entire oeuvre. The first time I wrote fuck in a script was in my second play, Getting On, and Kenneth Moore, who was the star and swore all the time himself, refused to say it on the understandable grounds that it would reduce the takings at the matinees, and since he was on a percentage, this mattered. The boys swear quite a bit in the history boys, but then boys do. If I hadn't made them swear, they'd be less credible. The headmaster in the place swears occasionally too, and with more feeling, and I've had letters about that, so there are still standards to be upheld. Headmasters don't swear. I'm surprised, though, these days at what audiences are prepared to take on stage, but I feel they don't want to take it from me. I'm not that sort of person, and I understand them feeling that. It's what I've thought all my life. 1st of November. Never having worked in the Olivier, coming in for the dress rehearsal for tonight and tomorrow night's National Theatre Gala, I immediately get lost and end up clambering about in the band room. The dressing rooms, when I reach them, are cells arranged round a central well, with the actors often shouting across to one another from their uncurtained cubicles. Coming in this afternoon, Maggie Smith said, Oh, God, it's like a women's prison. She didn't just mean any women's prison, but the penitentiary that used to stand on the corner of Greenwich and Sixth Avenues in New York. Relations of the inmates used to gather on the sidewalks to shout up at their incarcerated loved ones 
in a performance that was almost a tourist attraction in itself. Opposite my dressing room across the well is Judy Dench. One story down are Alex Jennings and Penelope Wilton, with the next dressing room dark, the window slightly ajar, and a thin skein of smoke ascending. Michael Gambon I envy them all, since appearing regularly on the stage, as most of them do, this occasion is almost routine. I haven't acted on stage for twenty years, and am petrified. That the extract from the History Boys isn't until ten minutes before the end makes it no easier. Still, the dress rehearsal goes well, after which Nick Heitner rehearses an elaborate curtain call that grows out of Francis de la Tour's final stage manager's speech, plays, 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 from the habit of art. I'm genuinely proud that it's my words that end this remarkable show, even though I wish I didn't have to perform in it. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.